From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. The Gators got up early and put together a workmanlike win over Missouri on homecoming. And as they head to the back half of the season, a night game in the swamp looms large against a different breed of tiger. On today's show, we'll fire up the roundtable with the voice of the Gators, Sean Kelly, and FloridaGators.com senior writers, Scott Carter and Chris Harry, to discuss how the job was done against Mizzou, progress on penalties, the strength of the running game, the challenges posed by LSU, the return of Mick Hubert as Mr. Two-Bits, the first-ever Tom Petty night, and the hotly debated state of roughing the passer calls in the NFL. Then, defensive lineman Princely Uman Mielin joins the show to discuss his Nigerian roots, what led him from Texas to Florida, and the ways Coach Napier has transformed the Gator program. But first, it's time for the Gator Roundtable, presented by Pet Paradise. Pet Paradise is your complete pet health care destination with resort-style day camp, overnight boarding, professional grooming, and compassionate veterinary care from New Day, all located under one roof to serve pet fanatics like you. Book today at PetParadise.com, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. A lot to get to on this week's roundtable. Let us dive right in. We are joined by the voice of the Gators, Sean Kelly, and of course, FloridaGators.com senior writers, Chris Harry and Scott Carter. Uh, Guys, we're at the halfway point, if you can believe that. It seems like it's come on really, really quickly, but after beating Missouri, Florida now 4-2, going to the back half in a pretty high-profile way with this night game in the swamp against LSU. Um, Before we talk about that matchup, Let's go back to Missouri a little bit. I know we talked about it last week, and Sean, you had made the the point that they were a very mysterious team. It was tough to know exactly what to expect, Uh, and Florida got a a pretty good game from Missouri, I think, as most of us thought they would, and again, maybe not the prettiest in how they finished it, but they got an SEC win, which when you look at recent history for the program, is not something they had a lot of, and a very important box to check. I believe that I know now what i need to know about the florida gator football team it took a game like the missouri game to kind of put me in that position i I described these two weeks here missouri last lsu coming up as the pivot point of the season the first test was passed last weekend missouri was mysterious uh florida in some ways is their own mystery at times I, i i think i've learned this i think the florida gators are a team that will probably be in most every game they play um i think they're enough good or efficient plays for them to win more than they lose the rest of the way. Uh, and I think that's been what we've seen through the first half of the season uh, in, in that sense too. So I like the win. Uh, there are things that I don't like about the game or the season itself, but not to say it is what it is, but this team is now, I think less of a mystery. Missouri probably remains to still be mysterious, but in Florida's case, I think we pretty much know well, now what it takes to win and where pitfalls come around for this football team. And all of that was on display uh, in a game that was 10-10 at the half. And then Florida does a nice job of making a couple of adjustments in the third quarter. And then sure enough, it's a couple of plays that determine this football game. Uh, and, and two of those big plays had the, the same name attached to it, Jaden Hill. Yeah, we talked before that game, you know, to the Missouri-Florida game. We've come to basically expect the unexpected, and we sort of got it again. I mean, I didn't see Florida having, what, just 66 yards uh, passing in the game after uh, Richardson's two big games against Tennessee uh, and the previous one against Eastern Washington. Uh, You you didn't see Jaden Hill suddenly, you know, in his second game back, picking off two passes, running one for a score. That is a lot of what Sean was saying. I'm I'm there with him. Uh, this is a team. I think they're going to keep it interesting all year. We we've, we've said that on this show. Um, I think if there's one takeaway that I came away with, I think they've carved out at least somewhat an identity. I mean, they're to win consistently. I think they're going to just have to run the ball 
And then when Anthony's hot, when the passing game's working, when he's when he's on the move and can uh, hit some guys, you know, let him make the plays. I mean, he, you know, he arguably had the biggest offensive play of that game when uh, he scrambled for the 32 yards, first down, got to the three. Montreal Johnson scored on the next uh, run that put him up for good in the game. But it was obviously not his best game uh, in the passing game. But yet they carved away. They had 212 rushing yards in the second half. And uh, put Missouri in a way, and and what I was looking at as kind of a must-win game for them to set the tone going into the second half. And now they get to do it again against LSU, guys. Yeah, uh, to Scott's point, six, 66 yards passing in a game, but also 66 total yards in the first half. And as as, as Sean said, it was ten nothing early on because of Jaden Hill, and he said the the name attached, the one name attached, you know, it helped secure that win. I mean. You can also say one name you can attach to, that kept both teams in the game is Anthony Richardson. I mean, he had he had two uh, p- pivotal turnovers, including including one late in the game that that put Missouri in a situation where they could have tied the game. And uh, I'm not saying anything he doesn't know. I'm not saying anything anything, anything the coaches don't know. But um, his 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 turnover ratio just has to come back. Whether it's fumbles, whether it's interceptions, it's just he's just got to start cutting into that a little bit. And that to this point in the midseason, that's one thing you can say we do know uh, about him. He's 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 prone to some mistakes, but he's prone to the, some of those spectacular plays. They're not in the game at Tennessee without him, obviously. At the same time, I think he had a couple turnovers up at Tennessee also. Um, but uh, uh, at the same time, last week, the, the, the running game is just too good uh, at times not to really take not to really take advantage of. I mean, it just seems like. They they can get in a groove and they got a couple of those tailbacks back there. They're really finding themselves, uh, you know, between between Montreal Johnson and uh, Sean and I were on the field. I remember standing next to Sean early on when we first met each other. He's loved ETN from the very beginning. You just kind of see that guy kind of developing and, and see the kind of player player that he can become. So running is the identity, but I t- I do I have to say. Jaden Hill has announced himself. I mean, he, he didn't play all last year because of that knee surgery. He re-injured it again, I guess, in the spring, re-injured a knee again. And to have him back the last two weeks, he has shown up. So uh, that's, a, that's a big boost for this team and for this defense for the second half of the season. In terms of other takeaways, and as we talk about this halfway point and, and maybe some things we've learned, things we've seen develop, Maybe the most interesting part of the box score from this past weekend, one penalty for five yards. Um, We know how big of an issue penalties were for the last few years. And Napier said pretty clearly, I'm going to come in and we're going to have more discipline. And and that part of the game is going to change. Now, does this mean Florida will have one penalty in every game going forward? Most likely not. But for a noon game, for a Missouri game, We've talked about all the ways those can tend to go wrong. I think that showed a lot of maturity and, and a clear sign of an area where Florida is improving. Yeah, Adam, I, don't, I, I think you're dead on. We're, you know, we're not, we're not going to come to expect that this is a one penalty a game team. That's just impossible for even the most disciplined team. It's, right. it's, it's a violent sport with a lot of moving parts. So uh, that, that itself, I think you're right, is a sign of growth. Is it, is it something that you'll lean on the rest of the way? No, but if you can keep it to a couple of penalties and certainly unlike Missouri, who's hurt themselves throughout the season. Uh, and it happened again, basically on Saturday, untimely penalties are even more important. And I think that's also something that we've seen uh, in this young Billy Napier era uh, thus far. Yeah, though. No, I mean, look, I, I don't want to sit here and say that we should all be okay with a team. That's just going to be relevant in every game. That's, that's not the case. I mean, I do believe that if L- that if um, the LSU game goes Florida's way, they've got a shot at eight wins this season. I think that's a very good mark for a team in their first year under a new head coach and uh, a roster that that he in- inherited. So, no, I, I don't want this conversation to sit here and say, you know, well, you know, third downs are still a problem and, and, and this, that, and the other. Th- yes, those are issues, but I do see – plenty of positives moving forward with this team. And that run game should not be looked at as, well, they've just got to rely on that run game. No, no, no. That's a strength that you've built and you've developed. I think that's great. And, you know, Montreal Johnson has five rushing touchdowns. Richardson does too. There's only one other team in the SEC that has two guys with five rushing touchdowns apiece. That's Ole Miss. We know what their season's going like. 
right now as well. So in, in that sense, yeah, lean on it and uh, and celebrate that strength. Sean kind of hit on this uh, a moment ago, but I'm, I'm curious, Chris and Scott, to get your take on maybe maybe the, the biggest takeaway you have about Florida at the halfway point. I don't know if it's maybe the biggest surprise, just something that stands out to you when you step back and you look at this six-game time capsule and, and what it means about the program now and where it's headed in the back half. To me, Adam, the, I'm going to kind of rely on Billy Napier here a little bit because I'm seeing what he's seeing. And I've, I've been around the program enough to know that they've always had fight here. And, he, and Napier has reiterates that a lot in his post-game press conferences or midweek. He always talks about one thing this team has is fight. And what that comes from is good chemistry in the locker room and the program. I've seen bad chemistry, and I've seen good chemistry. And I, I do see good chemistry with this with this team right now. And that starts directly with what? Uh, Billy and his staff have done. They've come in and and raised the bar on accountability and expectations, and that's what you have to do in your first season, right? But it's not necessarily you're going to get everybody to buy in. Uh, but you know, it's not a program that had a massive uh, list of transfers after he came in and met with them and and kind of set his tone. I mean, it's a a lot of players that are held over, and and obviously some young players who he brought in like Etn and others. Um, so I just see, you know, as far as a team, it, it's a team that I think is about where I expected as far as win loss. I think it can be better than I envision at the end of the year. But right now, I think the most important thing he's got going for him is he's got accountability and buy in and, and it's a solid foundation for year one at midseason. I mean, to, hey, Scott stole my thunder there. I mean, culture. Hate it when he does that. Hate so it when he does that. It's okay. It just means that he that and I mean, I you know you could have asked Sean maybe the same thing and 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 of course Sean hadn't been there the last few years, but we've seen we have seen what bad culture looks like. Oh, yeah. And this was this was a, a challenge. And I've said you know people ask me all the time what I think about Billy Napier. I, I just I, I love the steady hand and the demeanor, and he doesn't he doesn't waver from it. Um, and that, that, that's the old trickle down economics, if you will, it, it's just, uh, it, and, and you need guys to buy in and you need to kind of find the guys in the locker room who are, who are going to, you know, when you're, when you're, when the coaches are away, who are those guys that are, that are kind of policing things inside. And I think he has a pulse on all that stuff. And now you gotta get players. Gators, are, he, he's, he's going to get players, but you can't get him in the middle of the season. You got, you got to deal with the guys we've had talked about the the roster as is and you know i i think we also said all three of us i believe said back in august and september that we believed this was going to be a team that was going to get better as the season went on so to sean's point let's see if this team is an eight win team maybe a nine win team there's there's some carrots out there we can dangle a little bit um if this team is better than it is it's, it's, i think it's better than it was i mean we all got a little out of whack with utah Mm-hmm. Okay. And that was a really good win. It still looks like a good win to me. Um, but I mean, that was a hard game for Utah to come in here and win. Just like going to Utah will be hard for Florida next year. But I do think this is a better team than it was uh, when it played Kentucky. Has a better idea of who it is and what it needs to do. And back to what Scott said, understands, uh, listening to what the coaches are doing Um the culture, just the whole, there's, there's not backbiting. And I, you know, we can't say that's the way it's been around here um, under a couple of the coaches previously. And I'll, and I'll just add two things. I thought the offensive line would be pretty good. I think they're better than I thought they would be. They've been outstanding as a collective unit, even with Barber having to step in for Tarquin and play the bulk of the schedule so far at right tackle. And then I think all of all three of us agreed, Adam, that Ventrell Miller would have to be a significant piece of this Florida defense. And as advertised, he is the heart and soul of that Florida defense. You know, evident this past Saturday with 11 tackles, 10 solo. Uh, You know, look, there are other bright spots, as we mentioned with Jaden Hill earlier in the conversation. But, you know, Ventrell Miller uh, was sorely missed last year. We knew he had to be a major piece this year. And he has lived up to that billing through the first half of the season. He may be the most impactful uh, defensive player they've had here since, I'd say, John Grenard, Scott, 
I mean, he, uh, he made splash plays all over the place. And that guy, that guy was fantastic the other day. Yeah, I agree totally with what you guys say. <laughs> I don't have much to add, but. Yeah. <laughs> it is interesting, Chris, when you said, when you started to run into the most impactful defensive players since, my first thought was Grenard. That kind mm-hmm. of player who everybody follows his lead. And if he's not out there, you see a noticeable drop off. So I think right, he and definitely fits and you that see, bill. And you see him hitting guys. You see him putting pressure on people. You see him causing fumbles, incompletion. He's just around. That guy's around a lot. And when he's not in the game, it makes a big, big difference, obviously. Yeah. So let's talk about this weekend, LSU under the lights of the swamp. Before we talk about some of the, the pomp and circumstance around it, let's talk nuts and bolts on the Tigers. What are we expecting to see from this matchup and, and where are Florida's best areas to attack? It's a program that's coming in here, coming off a, a big home loss to Tennessee, Adam. And, you know, I, I think listening to Brian Kelly this week, I mean, he's using that as a, a rallying point for his team. I mean, he wants them to uh, use that loss uh, to the Vols as fuel for their fire as they know they're going to come into the swamp. And um, it's going to be an unbelievable atmosphere. LSU, Florida, we've seen it over and over. These games <laughs> almost uh, – Kind of like last week, Missouri, but on a different level. This is a they, this is a rivalry that has produced some really classic games and just moments that you remember. Uh, some good, some bad, right, Chris? Uh, about the the shoe toss, which I know will, will will be mentioned. But bottom line is, I think they're kind of like a program like the Gators. I mean, they're coming off a disappointing season last year. They're under a first year head coach, and I looked this up uh, this week, guys. Hard to believe, but this is the first or only second time ever two first-year coaches are leading these programs at the time of their meeting. And the last time it happened was 2005 with Urban Meyer and Les Miles. And then those guys won the three next three national titles after that. So, you obviously, Kelly and Napier would love to, to match that. But I yeah. think the programs are a little bit further off than maybe they were back then. So, I just look at this matchup as one that – uh which team's going to flex a little bit more and kind of reestablish itself in the hierarchy of the league because it, usually the winner of this game most years is in the hunt for the division title. Might not be that case this year, but it's still a big game. It's pretty amazing when you think about it, when you think where these two teams were, I mean, just three years ago. Uh, sure. Sean had a front-row seat there. That it may have been the greatest offense in the history of college football, certainly in the conversation, that 2019 LSU team. but um, And both of them now – New coaches and people try, you know, in in utter kind of you know re- rebuild syndrome or whatever. But it it's pretty amazing. From I think from '88 until around 2003 or 2004, I get. But Florida won. Florida won uh, uh, 13 of 14 in the series, and they've lost seven of the last nine, and I think it's uh, 11 of the last 14 or something like that. So um, it's 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 turned it's turned the Tigers' favor, and certainly. Um, as, as Scott mentioned, there's 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 been some interesting games along the way. There's certainly also been some pretty fantastic quarterback performances in this series along the way. If I may go back a little ways here, how about Tebow? Uh, the jump pass is against LSU. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris Leak also had a big-time game against LSU. Anthony Richardson himself last year in the second half uh, made that game in a pretty oh, yeah. fashion. And, and so that's worth noting. Uh, it, I find this interesting because if, if we're going to get specific on the Tigers here in the present, this might be the most talented team that Florida will face through these first seven in the sense of individual athletes. Maybe not as a collective, but the individual matchups are going to be uh, difficult uh, at times for Florida this weekend. I, I do think the quarterbacks, you know, not to state the total obvious here, Tell us a big story about this matchup, too. I think that Richardson's play stepped up with Hendon Hooker on the other sideline in that Tennessee matchup. I think you may get the same effect here with a guy like Jaden Daniels on the other sideline here for LSU. He, he can beat you both ways. They're going to try and get him outside of the tackles and create problems on the edge for Florida. It's also interesting that these are the two guys in the SEC this year that have thrown for less than 100 yards in a game, and that team won. And so that was Daniels against Auburn. It was Richardson this past weekend against Missouri. So uh, in that sense, I find that um, that pairing, because they don't go head-to-head per se, that pairing to be a very intriguing 
situation. Uh, Daniels throws for 300 yards last week, and they lose. <laughs> it, it, so, so what do you make of all this? And 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 which which style is going to prevail? Uh, I'm not so sure. I know it seemed evident in the Missouri matchup. We I think we all believed that it was going to be up front. How would that Florida offensive line handle the defensive pressure of Missouri? I'm trying to find that pinch point here in this particular matchup. Perhaps you two have found it already. And if so, please enlighten me because, <laughs> because <laughs> otherwise, otherwise I, I, I do, I do think Vegas kind of has this one, right? I said last week that they didn't have it right when they had Florida as a 10 point favorite. I think the line I checked the other day was two, two on the Florida side, probably because they're just, they're at home at the swap. That's how evenly matched. I think the Tigers and the Gators are this time around. That sounds about right to me too, Sean. And I'm all on that quarterback matchup. I was just, it reminded me here with Daniels and Richardson. It reminded me that a, a guy, if Daniels has a bad game and LSU brings in Garrett Nussmeyer to back up, you know it's a bad day. But Garrett spent a lot of time around the swamp when his dad was OC here. So uh, just interesting to see his name on the depth chart behind Jaden Daniels. A blast from a past that most Gator fans don't want to go back to, I think is probably a fair way to put that. Hey, speaking of a blast from a past, I got a weird one in the, I think it was 1990. Eight that LSU came for a night game here and Spurrier just to get it was the year after I think LSU had beaten them there and just to get them they love wearing their white jerseys and so they're on the road against white he that's the game he decided we're going to wear white jerseys at home just to go up their backside <laughs> on it and made, made that made them wear purple jerseys here on the road, on the road in, in the in, in the game and they won of course <laughs> beautiful beautiful I, yes i would yes, love yes. to see more coaches do stuff like that yes yeah that, that checks that's out when they, and they that's what the, their coaching staff like called him shiny pants because he'd wear these kind of you know funny kind of like like material kind of pants on the sidelines and they made fun of him by calling him shiny pants and it was in the paper and he didn't like that so and they had beaten him the year before so there was all kinds of all kinds of things going into it this is a this is an underrated uh sec rivalry because they have played the game annually for uh, for a, pr- a pretty long amount of time. As I've said before on this podcast, bring me all the petty. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of petty, uh, uninte- I'm I'm sure an unintentional perfect transition there you gave us, Sean, to talk about oh, some of the uh, the festivities surrounding this game. Uh, it is Tom Petty weekend or the Tom Petty game. So I would like to know more about what that means. And I also want to hear more about uh, the Celebrity Mr. Two-Bits, which was teased last week by you, Chris. And I would say that uh, it, it definitely delivers. Yes, uh, Mick Huber will be the uh, Celebrity Mr. Two-Bits this weekend. Uh, as everyone knows, it was a surprise when uh, uh, Mick uh, retired uh, at the end of baseball season last year. I mean, it literally... He told Scott Strickland on a Tuesday, called his last game on a Saturday, and basically signed up as a voice of the Gators in, a, in just a matter of hours. And uh, it took a, it took the fan base by surprise after 33 years. Actually, uh, you know, he'd earned the right to to have a farewell if you want to, but but you know, he won he wasn't going to do that. Um, Scott Strickland has been asking him to come back to do something, uh, take a bow between quarters at the football game, and he just you know just, he didn't want to seem like he was hanging around. They asked him to be that first two bits for Utah. He didn't. He de- he declined. But this is this is going to work out fine. I mean, it's the biggest SEC home game of the season. Uh, the fans will be uh, jacked up for it. I mean, I wrote the story that you know our two bit story goes out on Tuesdays at ten in the morning, and uh, I had I think I got over two hundred likes on it, which is you know pr- pretty pretty damn high number. So uh, that'll that'll be pretty anticipated. He he is he has. He has already stated he's going to be a boring Mr. Two-Bits because <laughs> as much as he was around Mr. Two-Bits um, for games on game day, Mr. Two-Bits, I guess, re- retired uh, technically 2008. Um, you know, he always heard Mr. Two-Bits, but he never watched it because he was in the middle of his broadcast. That's certainly something uh, Sean, Sean could appreciate. But um, it'll be, it'll be kind of cool, and, uh, and the fans will be into it. So, uh, you know, hopefully people will get a chance to see him and – and it'll be nice. He's also going to take a bow with uh, Lee McGriff on the sidelines, uh, I believe, between the first and second quarter. And those guys did – between the two of them, they got like 75 years of being Gators together. So that'll be kind of cool to have him back. Well, it's the first Tom Petty night at the Swamp. You know, not that LSU Florida needs any more 
uh, hype, but it's Tom Petty night. And, you know, we all know what this new tradition has become here at Florida. After the third quarter, uh, I won't back down. It, you know, the Gators did it for the first time back in 2017 after Tom Petty passed away. Uh, it was the next week that they did that. And it, it just kind of took off from there. And now it's become a thing. I mean, it's I, I talked to uh, Bruce Petty, his brother this week, and Adria Petty, his daughter, and they're both coming in for this game. And, you know, they're like a lot of us. It's like, I mean, they're obviously honored that their dad and brother are being remembered in this way uh, here in Gainesville, his hometown. So it's become special for them. But uh, while Bruce Petty's a big Gator fan, he lives over in Tallahassee, and he, he kind of follows his daughter lives in Los Angeles and she's going to be here for the first time ever at a football game. So she's really excited to see it. And there's going to be a lot of festivities around it. You know, Tom Petty radio on Sirius XM satellite radio, they're going to be here uh, broadcasts and there's all kinds of obviously merchandise and stuff like that around the stadium. And it's a whole Tom Petty weekend here in Gainesville the following weekend. So uh, it's just a way to, I think, honor, uh, Gainesville's favorite son, uh, but even more importantly for Florida, uh, it just developed into this tradition that, you know, at least in my opinion, it, it's quickly grown into one of the favorite traditions in college football. I mean, every weekend, every game, you see this thing just take off on social media, and it's at its best at the big games at night, uh, like we saw earlier this season against Utah. So I expect it to be a have a spine tingling moment on Saturday night, guys, when they do the, do the, uh, I won't back down. Let's move on to our PAT, which is inspired by, I would say probably the, the most talked about thing in sports this week. And that is of course the state of roughing the passer in the NFL. Now this was initially blown up because of the call that, that pretty much cost the Falcons any chance of coming back against Brady and the Bucks. Ironic. If you'll ask me if, Falcons trying to come back against Brady. Um, but a, a relatively normal tackle by Grady Jarrett that was followed by a, an attempt by Tom Brady to kick him. And yet, you know, roughing the passer on the Falcons, automatic first down when uh, the game was on the line. Uh, so that went through an uproar cycle. And then I, you could also, you could argue that what happened on Monday night was actually even worse. The roughing the passer called uh, against Derek Carr because the guy who, who was committed the penalty ended up with the ball in his hand and seemed to break his fall to avoid landing on car. Um, but somehow it was still called for roughing the passer that did not change the outcome of the game, but still is, is shined a pretty intense light on what are we supposed to do about this? Because quarterbacks are the stars of the NFL. Everybody knows that, but if you're going to have, you know, tackle football be a game, what do we do? Because it seems like we're at a place now where it, you're almost going to put the red jerseys on them and say you can't touch them because I don't know what other choices defenders have based on what's being called right now in the NFL. I mean, the only reason we're talking about it is what happened because of what happened with Brady. So how about just don't make that call? It was... <laughs> <laughs> Worst calls I've ever well, seen. No, but well, Monday <laughs> Monday night was arguably even worse. And Derek Carr is you know, not a guy who gets a ton of protection traditionally. One hundred percent. And and I think there, of course, there's a conscious uh, thing with these officials to certainly protect some of the some of the older guys. Matthew Stafford gets a gets a little more protection than maybe some of these younger guys. But it's funny that we're having this conversation literally a week after frightening episode with uh, with Tua. Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, you're, you got to protect the quarterback, man. He is in a vulnerable position and when he's out of pocket, of course, and running, that's a, that's a different conversation, but you know, until they do something where, unless they do something, not until, unless they do something where they review it. But again, they, they don't want to review judgment calls. If you're reviewing that penalty and then you, then, then you start reviewing offsides and procedures and holdings and stuff like that. And I, 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 <laughs> I don't have an answer for this one, guys. I was hoping we'd have uh, like a one of Adam's, you know, sillier kind of ones, but this is this, <laughs> this is one that 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 obviously people are talking about, and I, and some tells me Sean is going to yeah. have a, a, a an answer to to how this all can be cured. I well, think. look look how poorly the the pass interference review process went after what happened with the Saints. So 
I don't know that reviewing it is the answer. And, and even the official after the game said, I think by the letter of the law, he thought he was doing the right thing. So I, I think it goes back to the the way the rule is written itself seems to be the biggest problem here. Well, we're also talking about a rule that has been called differently now through different eras of the game. And, you know, you mentioned the pass interference thing. That's one thing I was going to bring up is that, you know, it seems like this judgment call has now surpassed the pass interference situation. This is not an easy job, and rightfully so. There's criticism of NFL officials, you know, um, with regard to whether it's the training or the quality of the official, all that. Um, and, and you're right. They tried to take away some of the judgment with reviewing pass interference. That was a disaster. And so if my initial answer was going to be, well, let's, let's review roughing the passer, we're probably sending ourselves down the same rabbit hole in that sense as well. Uh, just, you know, just, just remember here, this is the entertainment business. Okay. And so therefore you have to protect arguably the most important player on the field, but just remember that there are thousands of dollars being spent by fans to see these star quarterbacks. They're not paying that kind of money to watch the backup when a guy gets crushed and can't finish a football game. Uh, you know, it also interferes with whether you want to talk about it or not, the betting situation and that billion dollar business that it's become in all those things. Uh, yeah, I bet my partner, Shane Matthews, and my childhood idol, Jim Hart, and a few others would love to be playing under the same rules that are even in place right now, but perhaps they have to be tweaked even more. I don't know what the answer is right now because in a lot of ways, guys who are at full speed going after a quarterback, and we've heard coach after coach after coach talk about affecting the other team's quarterback. That's the key to football now. And to have them pull up, change direction, hit them in one only particular spot. I don't know how that's even physically possible. So um, settle in. It's a longstanding argument that will continue to be debated week after what was week. It? What was it Al Davis said? The quarterback must go down and he must go down hard, right? <laughs> Yeah, he said a few other things too that endeared himself to the league. Was office. That, were, were you doing? <laughs> yeah. Were you doing Al Davis's JFK there, Chris? What was the uh, the, the affectation there? That's how that's how, that's how <laughs> Al Davis talked, man. Um, Scott, huge, huge responsibility. The two of them have both punted on the solution. It is up to you to give us the solution to the problem. Well, yes, Scott. Besides bringing back, you know, I'm, I'll be glad when Sean Payton rejoins the league. Because he's known to take out those guys. And uh, <laughs> bottom line is, guys, the game's at a crossroads, right? I mean, they can, it, it's just really unfair to a defensive lineman to be in the situation that the Falcons guy was the other day. He did everything that he's supposed to do. That's everything he's coached to do. He made a big play and he gets penalized for it. And uh, so you're basically disrupting the integrity of the game to protect your quarterbacks. I understand everything else, but somewhere the NFL is going to have to come to a, I guess, coming to Jesus moment, you know. Are we going to change the rules of the game for the quarterback's sake? And they need to be written so these guys know exactly what they can and can't do. I mean, it may be a point where one day it's like touch on the quarterback. I mean, that's where it seems to be heading. Because I, I, like Sean said, it's all entertainment value. I totally get you want to see those marquee players, but what I really want to see more than anything is I want to see guys being rewarded to make plays like uh, Falcons guy did. And, and you know, I, I, violence is part of the game, fellas. We haven't really come up with a solution yet. So this I don't think this will be of much help for the rules committee to listen to this. But uh, obviously it's an issue. NFL is at a crossroads. I think that, that Scott hit that point perfectly. So we shall see what happens. We're doing the best we can, but don't we, we only have so many answers. Um, we will have more answers, hopefully, about Florida and LSU coming up this weekend. So, of course, encourage everybody to listen to Sean's call of the game. Check out all the content that Chris and Scott have going on around it at FloridaGators.com. And we'll be back next week to talk about it. Thanks so much, guys. Take care. Thanks, Adam. While Florida's defense has struggled at times this year, it's also seen the emergence of some young playmakers just scratching the surface of their potential. One of those is princely Uman Mielin, the Texas native who made plays all over the field against Missouri. We spoke to the sophomore to learn more about his fascinating backstory, beginning with the origins of his royal name. 
my name is Princely Umami Ellen. Um, I'm Nigerian, so that gives you a little background of the last name. Uh, mm-hmm. My first name, Princely, uh, my dad came up with it. I don't know how he went about it, but <laughs> uh, my big brother's name is Prince. I'm Princely, and then my I have a younger brother, Prince Will, and then the last one is Princeton. Wow. So where do I mean, you're not sure where the the prince thing? I mean, was was your dad a prince fan? Like, where did this? Where did the prince emphasis come from? I really have no clue to be honest. <laughs> I have to ask my dad what inspired that. <laughs> um, I, I'm curious. You know, you, you said your name, and your name is it's very difficult to spell, and probably for a lot of people, it's hard to pronounce. How often have people correctly said your name, your full name, their first try? How rare is that? I could probably count on like one hand. <laughs> uh, okay, so now that we, we established that, you did tell us a little bit about you. You have a lot of brothers. Um, tell us a little bit more about your family, your background. Wh- where I mean, you mentioned the, the Nigerian heritage. Tell us a little bit about your family. Um, my parents, they're both they're both Nigerian, born and raised. I, me and my big brother were born in Nigeria, so I was born overseas. Um. I, I moved to the U.S. We moved to New York when I was uh, young. We lived in New York for a couple of years. We moved to New York. I was probably like a year or two old. And when we lived in New York for a little bit. And while I was still like a, like a very young child, we moved to Texas. And that's where like if anybody asks me where I'm from, I'll say Texas because that's where I grew up and was raised most of my life. But, oh, yeah, my little brother, Prince Will, he was born in New York. And then my last brother was born in Texas. And yeah, we were living in, living in Texas for probably say like over, I don't even know, probably like over 14 years now or something like that. Wow. My parents, my mom owns a restaurant in Texas and she sells Nigerian food. Oh, wow. Is there a big Nigerian population in Texas? Uh, Compared to other states, I would say yes. Really? Wow. What kind of food are we talking about? What what is what are the staples of that that obviously people like enough to to support a restaurant? I say the starter dish would probably be uh jello rice. This is Nigerian rice that they make. It's like very flavorful, a little spicy, and it's like the color is orange, and mm-hmm. it's served with like different types of meat. You can get whatever meat you want. Like you can put chicken, turkey, beef, goat meat in there, whatever you want. And yeah, it's just a certain type of rice that's made with like different spices and tomato paste and things like that. Hmm. How spicy yeah. are we talking? It sounds spicy. Mm, one through ten. It's just, one through ten is probably like a four. Okay. What if you're really soft? I'm pretty soft. For me, maybe like a seven or an eight. What do you think? No, nah, for you, I'd still say it'd probably be a six, five. It's not that spicy. Yet. You have more confidence in me than I do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So... You talked about your brothers. Uh, I imagine that there was a lot of a lot of roughhousing going on, right? So it was yeah. was football the natural outlet because of all the energy you guys had? How did football get into the picture? Uh, football got into the picture when we moved to Texas. So um, we moved to Texas, and then uh, when I got to my elementary school, not even when we first moved, because when we first moved there, I went to two different elementary schools. I went to the first elementary school. And I didn't play any sports. And then when I got to, I was in third grade and my, one of the teachers at the school, he was an ISS teacher and a counselor. He had a football team and he just realized that my mom had, you know, like three boys in his elementary school. He was like, I got a football team. So he just talked to my mom about it. My mom asked us how we felt about it. She was like, y'all really want to play that dangerous game? He was like, yeah. So then, (laughs) yeah, I've been, me and my brothers have been playing ever since I've been, I started in third grade. Wow. Um, did you all like, did you all gravitate to the same position? Did you all want to do the same thing? Like, how did you, how did the, uh, your football journey evolve there within your family? That's a good question. Um, I would say, I don't, I don't know if we all gravitated towards the same position. I think me and my little brother did at first. Uh, I can't, I really don't even remember what position my big brother played because, I for he played football through eighth grade and then he stopped until his senior year of high school and then he started again his senior year. So I don't even like I just I knew him so long as a basketball player that hmm. I forgot what position he played. But uh, when I first started, I wanted to play running back really bad. I felt like because uh, in my neighborhood when I I was very young in my neighborhood we we had a little grass field and I would go out there and uh, play uh, 
football with the older guys that we used to play tackle football with no pads on. And I was like one of the youngest out there and I would still be breaking tackles and stuff. So I was like, okay, I think I can play running back. I know I can't catch. So, (laughs) but I was long, I was tall, long and skinny. So they thought I, they wanted me to play receiver. So they had, oh, they had me at tight end, but I couldn't Mm. catch to save my life. So I didn't really get too many balls thrown at me, but I could catch now though. But uh, (laughs) my little brother, he played running back in little league. He was really good. So how did you end up where you are now? How did you become a, a, a D lineman? The In middle school, um, I played middle linebacker in middle school, throughout middle school. And then I got to high school and it was like the first day of football. And it was like, all right, go to your position or whatever, like whatever position you think you play. And I went to linebacker. And then the coach was like, what you doing over there? You know, linebacker, you a defensive <laughs> end. And then they just threw me at defensive end my freshman year of high school. Huh. So I imagine uh, it seems like you're where you are today. It went pretty well. Uh, I'm curious, at at what point did you realize you could play at a level that could get you a D1 scholarship, that could make football a part of your future, as opposed to just something fun that you did to to get some energy out? Well, my whole life, that was like, I always wanted to do that. But the, the point where I noticed like I could actually do it was probably my sophomore year. Um, we had a, a senior defensive end. His name was Osan Mathis, and he went to TCU. He he just transferred to um Nebraska. Hmm. Well, while he was he would have like he was committed to TCU at the time, and like coaches was come to the school to look at him. And one one day the TCU coaches came to look at him, and they noticed me also. And then they started talking to me and gave me their card and things like that, and told me to come up to a camp and things like that. So that's when I uh realized I could probably like you know make it big in it. When I saw from the other schools you were considering, obviously you had a lot of interest from schools around Texas. They had a chance to see you the most. Uh, when did Florida come into play, and why was that an appealing choice as opposed to somewhere a little closer to home? Uh, Florida first came into play. Um, it was very late, actually. So I'm pretty sure they they never were in the picture because I was a Texas kid in Austin, Texas, committed to Texas. So hmm. uh, I understand. So as soon as I... So my senior year, uh, I had until signing day was in February of twenty February of twenty twenty, I mm-hmm. believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Signing day was in February of twenty twenty, and it's like that October or November of twenty nineteen. I had dis- decommitted from Texas, and then when I decommitted about two weeks later, Florida offered me, and I was like, "That's a you know pretty good SEC school." So I ha- I had to you know see what they were talking about, and um. A big thing in my decision was I didn't want to go somewhere that was cold because I wasn't like I wasn't too used to the cold, you know. So I was like, it's a nice school. It's in the south. It's pretty good. It's not too far, but not too close. And then I seen um, it was also SEC school. Like when I was making the reason I had decommitted from uh, Texas was because I wanted to play in the SEC because like no matter what they say, I I mean, People could say what they want, but I still feel like the SEC, like the competition is just different in the SEC. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to uh I wanted to play in the SEC and I seen that Florida was open. But I also had other SEC offers, like even Texas AM. But one thing I noticed about Florida was they didn't have much depth. So I was like, I see these these all these other schools are telling me, selling me a dream, but I'll probably get go down there and be lost in the depth chart like my first two years or whatever. But at Florida, I actually have a chance to step on the field really uh really early. So that's another thing that made me to the University of Florida. That's a very solid thought process, actually. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you said you didn't want to be anywhere in the cold. Did you not? Have you lost all of the New Yorker in you at this point? Like, do you, does any yeah, part of you still yeah, feel I ain't gonna it? Lie. Yeah, it's all gone. It's all <laughs> gone. I wish I would have stayed there a little longer so I could get a, had a little slight bit of the accent or something. But nah. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm full Texas now. It's gone. It's gone. Yeah. <laughs> I just got Nigerian and Texas. <laughs> okay so when you came into the program uh who showed you the ropes what do you remember about the early days and and who really helped you come along um it was really to be honest i other than zach carter was zach was one of the ones who really showed me the ropes for real but other than zach the people i uh i levitated towards even though they weren't uh really older guys they were they, i mean they were older than me but they weren't older guys they were in like a grade right above me so I had like I had got really close with Lloyd, uh, 
really close with Hopper, Tyron Hopper, Mahmood. Mahmood was a big one. He was a he was a big one that, that stayed on me because he thought I was going to be a really good player. So he stayed on me and was like, you know, pressing me and stuff like that. So Mood, Lloyd, Hopper, those, those three were the were the main, main ones when I first got here. So it's interesting. Two of the guys you just mentioned transferred after last season, and you've actually yeah. played, you've played both of them and beaten both of them for what it's worth. Um, <laughs> yeah. So... When the new staff came in, guys like that, obviously some made a decision to leave. You obviously chose to stay. What was it about the new staff and what you were hearing from them that convinced you staying was the right move for you when obviously some others you were close to decided something else? I don't think anybody that would that was in my position would be dumb enough to leave, if that makes <laughs> sense. Because, like... uh you know, I had just sat behind Zach for two years and it was just no matter what staff was there, I knew it was like my time, my turn and my time to shine. So I was just like, you know, it was and 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 even when, when it does come to the staff, though, when they came in, it was just everything like you don't really notice how bad or good something was until like something else comes in. So like I didn't really notice how low of a standard our program was being ran at until the new staff came in and I, and everything just changed, like everything completely changed. Yeah. So when, when the new staff came in on the defensive side, how did it change? Like what is different now from if we'd had this conversation a year ago, what's different today? I feel like we pay attention to uh, more details. And like, for example, uh, in, in fall camp, in the practice versus our offense, we review how many yards, per carry they got how many uh how many explosive plays how many yards per throw how many uh turnovers we got like all the defensive statistics and things like that uh before we would only do that when we would have a scrimmage but now we started to do that every single practice just so we know where we're at and things like that so just just small things like that, like more meeting times and, and stuff like that. Uh, I'm sure something that stayed the same is a lot of lifting. And that means that you get to lift with Desmond Watson. I read <laughs> some numbers this week that just made my my head, my eyes pop out of my skull. Um, what is it like lifting with Desmond Watson? When it comes to bench, it's just like, how? But when it comes <laughs> to squat, you know, I'm, I'm up there with Des when it comes to squat. How crazy are they? What, what kind of numbers is he putting up on? But I'm, I don't, I don't want to get him wrong. I'm sure you know. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's at 500 or 500 plus on, uh, on bench and then on squat 700. Now, where, where are your numbers in relation to that? And, and, and are you, are you the most competitive, or is there someone else in the line who's maybe even taken that standard up? Um, I think. Well, when you okay, so here, here's the deal. The, the, the other person. <laughs> The 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 top two guys, they're both three hundred plus. I'm two six two fifty, right? Okay. So Des, the one, the person right behind Des, I'll say is Kingsley. I know, I think he benches close to he benches four hundred plus, I believe, and wow. squats seven hundred plus. And I bench, I bench about three fifty, three sixty, and squat seven hundred. Okay, but it's but you're right. It's pound for pound. It's like asking, yeah, you wouldn't have, Floyd Mayweather wouldn't fight Evander Holyfield, right? You got we yeah. gotta we gotta go like for like here. Yeah. Okay. Um, so when you are outside of the weight room, when you're not on the field, what are the things that you like to do? What what gets you going in the little free time that you have? To be honest, I've been like since I've so when I was in high school, all I used to do for fun would just either go to my friend's house or just do different things with my friends. But like since I got to college, I've been trying to I just realized I have no real hobbies, to be honest. Like <laughs> Except for sports, but other than <laughs> yeah, I like I just whenever I'm not doing anything, I'm just watching movies or something. So what what does one do when they realize they have no hobbies? Like how do you have you started to look for new hobbies, or is there just not time for that? I feel like there's there's time. Like it's not like a everything I can do every day, but I feel like there's time. I've been I've been trying to like I feel like people always tell me that fishing is fun. I've never been fishing before. Okay. Uh. Maybe bowling, but yeah, I feel like there's times just that I just don't be too interested. It's just like, <laughs> that's what college is all about, right? Learning new things, discovering who we are. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Um, one thing that, that I've seen you do a lot of is uh, volunteer work, especially with the Ronald McDonald House. Can you tell us about that experience and, and how did that relationship start? Because I've, I've seen just on your social feed that you've been doing a lot of work with them. Yeah, Um. well, I met the... 
through the I met the the man through the uh through the football team and he just told us about uh these like these events that that they go that they do once a month and I've just been going to going there once a month then it's a really cool experience just you know putting a smile on those kids faces uh cooking with them and things like that and seeing their parents just all like you know just in all that they're doing this with the with some Florida Gators like with their kids and things like that so it's just a really overall good experience and a like you know a really humbling experience and a good way of giving back yeah that's really cool a couple of final things for you bringing it back to the field uh this weekend it's a night game against LSU what is it about night games that gets the guys going like is it really that much different from a day game in the swamp and why it is. I think I think it's much different from a day game. I feel like the crowd is just way more amped up because uh because they're not waking up an hour ago or two hours ago. You know what right. I mean? Tired, but and it's just just something about being under the lights when when nothing else is dark around except for the stadium and just the energy of the crowd is just so much different. It reminds me of like Texas high school football. Hopefully a little bigger than Texas high school football. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bigger, bigger, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. When it comes to LSU, what have you seen on film from these guys? What what stands out when you guys are going through your prep this week? Um, the quarterback. We've been really emphasizing uh, keeping the quarterback in the pocket, and if he does try to get out the pocket, that we're in the right rush lanes to try and keep him out the pocket. But you know, he's not like a guy that just wants to throw. Like he's not a guy that just wants to run the ball every play. Like he he wants to play quarterback, but he he can be dangerous on his feet though. Final question for you. This is the halfway point of the year going to the back half now. Uh, through six games, obviously the start of a whole new era for Florida football under Coach Napier. What do you feel like you guys have done the best? And in what areas do you think there's the most improvement to be had? I feel like what we do the best is what we do the best is prepare, preparation, like for during the week going up to the game. And I feel like what we can do better is um take that preparation and put it into the game because the two games that we have lost the season, we went back and, and watched the film as a team and seen that there, there was multiple plays, like several plays that could have been touchdowns or could have been tackles for loss or could have been, you know, just negative plays and things like that, that um are like when we, versus Ken, Tennessee and Kentucky. It doesn't look that way on TV, but, when we go back and watch the film, we beat ourselves more than uh, Tennessee and Kentucky beat us. Well, Princely, thank you so much for your time. Wish you a lot of luck this week. I know it's going to be an exciting one under the lights. And uh, thank you again for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Appreciate it. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to keep track of all of the orange and blue action by visiting FloridaGators.com, then come back here every Thursday during the athletic season for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Thank you so much for tuning in to Gator Tales. Gator Tales.